Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the Lore Explorer podcast, a podcast where we talk about the lore and history of various media, ranging from video games and movies to real-life figures and events. I am very happy to be back after what seems like forever. I feel reinvigorated with a brand new logo created by my talented cousin, and I'm ready to get into today's topic, the killers from Dead by Daylight. If you enjoy the podcast, be sure to stick around to the end to hear about how you can support the show on my Patreon page. All of the information gathered today comes straight from the game's lore. Now turn off the lights, get some candles going, and get ready for the dark and brutal history behind the killers of Dead by Daylight. Dead by Daylight has a unique cast of killers, some original and some from well-known movies and shows. There isn't as much lore for the characters like Freddy and Michael Myers in the game, so if you'd like to delve deeper into their stories, let me know and I can possibly do episodes on them specifically. Each killer comes with their own background that fills out a larger universe in the game, as well as locations that are part of their story that we play through in the game as well. We won't touch on the entity or the survivors much in this episode, but they're bound to come up at certain points. There are sometimes passages about the killer's past that I will read from the official webpage. I feel this gives a lot more feeling and background to their personality and character. Playing this game with the knowledge gained from these passages enhances my experience because they're not just a face anymore. They've had a life before they became what they are. They were once human. That, I feel, makes the game all the more fun to play. So without further ado, let's get into the first killer. There was a vast monster of a man with a hideous grin torn across the mask that keeps stalking my every move. Similar to a hunter, he tracks us, priming devastating traps amongst the greenery. Extreme vigilance and a light step is essential in avoiding the blood-curdling clinch of a bear trap or the clutches of what I've taken to calling the miserable smiling killer. I have but many times managed to get caught in one of these traps. I have nothing but a fear for the feeling of blunt trap spikes grinding against my bones, or for the heavy and deliberate footsteps which always inevitably reveal a plastered, sadistic grin. With the traps and the trapper, it has so far been a constant battle between looking up and looking down. This comes from Benedict Baker's journal, November 1896. Now, with every killer we go over, in the beginning there will always be a passage from Benedict Baker. He seems to be the source of where all of this information comes from in the game. The first killer we'll cover is the poster boy for the game, Evan McMillan, otherwise known as the Trapper. Wielding a rusty cleaver and bear traps, he uses his immense strength, to overpower survivors. Evan McMillan idolized his father. It wasn't just that he was heir to a great fortune, it was the way he ran the estate. Raised under his firm hand, Evan had taken to running the workforce with an iron hand. Production was always high, and the McMillan estate prospered under father and son. As Archie McMillan's mental health slowly disintegrated, Evan protected him from the herd who had wanted a piece of his fortune. No matter what his father asked of him, Evan would do. When Archie McMillan finally snapped, Evan became his enforcer in what would become known as the worst mass murder in modern history. 
They never proved that Evan led over a hundred men into those dark tunnels before detonating the explosives and sealing them to their fate. The tale of the Macmillan estate is a tale of wealth and power gone very wrong. How many victims fell to the hands of father and son is unknown. No record is ever made of what became of Evan Macmillan. His father is another unsolved puzzle, found trapped in the locked basement of his own warehouse, starved and abandoned. What I read next comes from the various memories of Evan McMillan. Memory 1235. Evan is 14 years old and he knows something his father doesn't. The thought thrills him, amazes him, scares him. There is something his father doesn't know. Something the owner of one of the most profitable mines in all of Seattle doesn't know. His father manages his workers with an iron fist. No, not an iron fist. Brass knuckles. He calls them maggots. Groveling maggots. He's about to discover he's wrong. They're more than maggots. Much more. They're men. And men working together can bring change. One of these men is inspiring others to take their lives back. If they can stand together, maybe, just maybe, they can bring in the Union. With the Union, they'll have rights, more than rights. They'll have dignity, freedom, time. Time to spend with their friends. Time to spend with their family. Time to be human. Evan knows something his father doesn't know, and he feels empowered. Memory 1236 Evan's father thrusts him to the ground, calls him weak, tell him he's got to stop being so nice to the maggots, stop talking to them, stop helping them, keep them in line, break them, let them know who's boss. If you give them an inch, they'll take a yard. They're just using you. Evan knows better than to say anything. His father punched and broke his jaw last year when he showed weakness. This year, he'd rather not sip dinner through a straw. This year, he holds back, bites his tongue. He wants to tell his father about the Union, but he doesn't. He feels ashamed, torn between his loyalty for his father and for his friends. Bob, Tom, Jim. They deserve more. Memory 1237. Evan enjoys creating something from nothing. He's not an artist, but he enjoys sketching, and he hides his sketches from his father. His father forbids sketching. Sketching is for weaklings, vagabonds, gypsies. He wants Evan to do worthy things. He drags Evan to his most profitable mine and teaches him how to manage maggots. He's hands-on, very hands-on, abusive, violent, and brutal. The key is to break them, break their will, break their spirit. Once broken, a human is a tool that can be wielded to do anything. Broken. It's what he did to Evan's mother. It's what he's doing to him. But Evan still sketches sketching in defiance. Memory 1238. Evan watches his father yell at one of his workers. He's sick. He wants to leave. But he's not allowed. He leaves. He loses his job. Evan feels for the man. Wishes he could do something for him. He wants to tell him things are going to change. The union is coming. The union is coming and with it a good wage and fair working hours. But the man's lungs are black and his stomach is rot. Too much stress. Too much acid. Not enough sleep. He collapses. His father doesn't care. Kicks him in the gut. Tells Evan to drag him out of the mine. Evan drags him out. For a moment he feels disgusted at the man's weakness and wants to put this 
maggot out of its misery. He's becoming his father, and he's not sure if that's a bad thing. Memory 1239 Evan's father forces him to set up a bear trap in a dark forest. His father is obsessed with hunting bears. Always has been. Always will be. He tells him the story. Always the same story. He doesn't want to hear it, but he will. His father was hunting with his brother when they ran into a grizzly bear. The, the bear tore his uncle's arm off and bit into his head. Evan's father jumped on the grizzly's back, stabbed the bear endlessly, killed the bear, ripped open its stomach to retrieve his brother's head, carried his brother's mutilated body ten miles to their family estate. This time it's ten miles. Last time it was five. His father grins. The story is changing with every telling. Sometimes Evan wonders if there even was a bear. Memory 1240 Evan's inspired in a way he's never been before. Furiously, he sketches his father in a bear suit, killing his uncle. He never met his uncle, but he's seen pictures. His uncle was a philanthropist, a bleeding heart, disloyal. He would have run the business into the ground with proper wages and all that socialist crap. That's why he had to go. Evan doesn't have proof, but he knows. Deep down, he knows his father murdered his uncle, tied him up, left him for a bear. There was no knife, no fight, no honor. Just a terrible death for a disloyal worm. Evan suspects all this, and yet he doesn't feel disgusted or ashamed. He feels something else, something he's trying not to feel, something he won't admit to himself. Memory 1241 Evan looms over his father's bed and watches him sleep. He hates and loves him at the same time. Sometimes he wonders what his life would be like without him. He owes him so much and yet he's miserable and alone. He raises a massive gray stone and holds it there for a long minute that feels like forever. He could be free. Truly free. But he can't. Not like this. He could free himself in other ways. Accidents happen. Hunting accidents. Mining accidents. He could lure him into the bowels of the mine and ignite a stick of dynamite. No way he survive. But despite it, Evan can't do it. His love is bigger than his hate. He owes him too much. Memory 1242 Evan sketches his father in a bear suit, drowning his mother. He never believed his father's story. Something didn't feel right. His eyes, his grin, his lack of empathy. She was pulled into a current and never seen again. His mother. She was beautiful. Blonde hair, blue eyes, fun full of compassion, his opposite. She didn't just go out to swim one morning and never came back. She was getting in his way, and no one gets in his way, not even family, especially not family. Obedience or death. Evan's tired of obedience. Yes, he's loyal to his father, but he's also loyal to his friends. They talk to him, encourage him, thinks he's a great artist. He has friends. He's never really had a friend. His father wouldn't allow it. Waste of time. They're using you. Yes, he's loyal to his father, but he's also loyal to his friends. They deserve better. Memory 1243 
Evan's father stares at him across the dinner table. He knows. Maybe he doesn't know, but he senses something's amiss. He has that look in his eye, that look that tells Evan he's in for it. He chews on a fatty piece of rabbit and hopes his father doesn't say anything. He should have known better than to keep something from him. His father knows. He always knows. Last year, Evan lost his cool on a man who said something about his mother. He almost beat the man to death with a two-by-four while his father watched and laughed. The authorities pulled Evan away. He smiled at Evan and knew he wouldn't admit it to himself. He enjoyed beating on that man. Not because of the insult. Not because he felt threatened. But because he felt powerful. His father smiled. Apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, does it? Memory 1244. Evan finds his sketches torn to bits. He puts the pieces together. All of them accounted for except one. He doesn't have the picture of his drowning mother. His father enters his room. Despair and dread overwhelm him. He waits for a blow that never comes. Instead, his father tells him he has instinct, and instinct is everything. He tells him he inherited his instinct from his side of the family. The same instinct that told him Evan was keeping something from him. Don't pretend, I know. A few of her maggot friends sold you out for a few dollars. Evan starts, but doesn't say anything. Can't say anything. The words are caught in his throat. He apologizes. His father says nothing, walks away. Evan follows him to his bedroom where he sees the picture of his dying mother, framed above the bed. His father tells Evan he will learn a lesson tomorrow, one he hopes he understands. Evan stares at his father and feels hate. Hate for the maggots who betrayed him and for his father. Respect. No, not respect. Admiration. Now I'd like to give some history of the map. The Macmillan Estate in all its former glory. Now an ominous lot with nothing more than horrid memories of brutality in its purest form. The foundry and mine were the heart and center of the estate. Those unlucky enough to be employed by Archie Macmillan slowly started to slip away from all kinds of normal life. Wives asking for their husbands to come home. Archie Macmillan began to obsess. His life was built around and on top of the mine and foundry. One day, the former worker, now slaves, were not allowed to leave the premises without permission. Fences and goons made sure of it. Objections were rewarded with a visit to the furnace. Questions and rumors arose in town, but no answers. One fewer worker, missed by maybe a poor widow, was not enough for real action. Finally, Archie McMillan snapped and sealed his workers in the mine, suffocating them. Archie McMillan's remains were later found a silent skeleton with a taunting grin upon his meatless skull. What is left of the estate are now but mere ruins and myths. Teens enter the area from time to time in a game of dare, bringing back new information about what is happening at the estate. Because somehow it seems like something is happening there, even though not really understandable to the simple human eye and mind. There's another apparition more terrifying than anything I've ever seen. Hunting amongst the shadows here, it moves like a silhouette, appearing and disappearing at the sound of a dreaded bell. It's impossible to track it. Several times it has caught me without even seeing its closing in. 
often convinced I have my back covered, it has promptly materialized right behind me to strike from close range. Stay still and watch the fog. Don't move, don't blink, and for God's sake, don't breathe. If you can control your fear long enough and can show self-control, sometimes it is possible to see it shimmer as it glides forward if caught at just the right light. I pray for your safety. Benedict Baker's Journal, November 1896, on the Wraith. Philip Ojomo, otherwise known as the Wraith, came to this country without anything other than hope for a new beginning. He was happy as he got offered a job at Autohaven Wreckers, a small scrapyard where bribed cops turned a blind eye for the somewhat shady business that took place. Ojomo didn't care. He had seen criminal activity up close in his homeland, and as long as he didn't get involved, he let things be. He just fixed cars and handled the crusher, something he did really well. A car went in and a small metallic cube came out. It was not until one gloomy day that he, just by accident, saw some blood coming from one of the uncrushed cars. As he opened the trunk, he found a young man, gagged with his tied hands with panic-filled eyes. Ojimo freed the man who managed to run ten feet before Ojimo's boss stopped him and slit his throat. As Ojimo demanded answers, he got explained to him that he'd been nothing more than a simple executioner. Every car had a soul in them, as this was a quote-unquote service the scrapyard provided to certain clients. Ojimo snapped and went ballistic. He threw his boss in the crusher and let it slowly compress. As the head stuck out, Ojimo grabbed it and pulled head and spine out of the body. Then he left and was never seen again. The Wraith's primary weapon is the skull and spine of his former boss, Azarov. He also wields the Wailing Bell, a heavy cast iron bell imbued with ancient powers that allows the user to enter and walk the spirit world when rung. The spirit world is on a different plane of existence to the Entity's Realm. Its appearance is identical to the Entity's Realm, but those who traverse it see black fog covering their peripheral vision. Notably, beings within the spirit world cannot interact with beings and objects outside of it. For the common eye, Autohaven Wreckers was nothing more than a scrap heap with old cars. Maybe, to some, an eyesore as people passed it on their way to work. But nobody really knew the secret it kept within. Nobody thought that the police would find hundreds of bodies, bits and pieces, some more rotten than others, crammed into cars human bones bent in unnatural ways. The stench that stuck the police was unbearable, and the most horrific finding was the owner, stuck in the crusher without a head. The few employees that could be found held no answers to the deeds that had taken place at the scrapyard. The place was condemned, and as it stoiled the town's reputation, people just let it be overgrown, maybe with a naive hope for it to be consumed by nature itself. But as the townsfolk started to see how the lights turned on and off at night, and could even hear the crusher working, they suspected something more. But all they did was to speed up as they passed it on their way to their now somewhat safer lives. A most terrible man to behold. His physique is all twisted and disfigured as if by some awful accident. He carries a deadly and cruel chainsaw which he wields with devastating violence seemingly imbuing him with a supernatural speed for a while. His advantage is also a weakness as the loud noise can give away his position, so I have tried to heighten my sense of sound, 
honing in on any sound that is not stemming from nature. Benedict Baker's Journal, November 1896, on the Hillbilly. The son of wealthy landowners Max Thompson Sr. and Evelyn Thompson, this unnamed boy was an unwanted child born to savage parents. Hideously disfigured, he was shut away from society. So ashamed of their son, they bricked him off into a room and fed him through a hole in the wall. When the boy escaped, he took his revenge savagely and terribly, slaughtering the parents that had tortured him instead of raising him. After the deed was done, he continued to live his life at the farm, taking out his deranged violence on the animals that were allowed to run free. As he finally broke free from his shackles, he ran through the cornfields, chasing and slaughtering whatever he could find. They never found the bodies of Max and Evelyn, but they did find tortured and disemboweled animals all over the farm. Coldwind Farm was quickly settled and the land split up and sold off. There was never a buyer for the farmhouse. The hillbilly wields a cattle hammer and a chainsaw, with which he propels himself to high speed. Arcus 9082 Max has quite an arm. A farmer made his way out of a barn and with one well-aimed blow with a spade, his head was severed from his shoulders and two spouts of hot blood burst from his body like geysers. Max watched the headless man stagger stupidly and collapse in a growing puddle of seeming blood. I have to admit, I've gone through this memory more than once. It's one of my favorites. I find Max disturbingly amusing and the illusion of death fascinating. At a distance. Coldwind Farm was widely known as it spanned two counties. Mr. and Mrs. Adams put a lot of work into the farm, but all of those blisters and sweat paid off. But for some reason, one day in 1946, products stopped coming, and when crops started to wither and die, investigators decided to take a closer look. The farmhouse was abandoned, dust covered the floor, mold and dampness covered the rest, fecal matter was found across the house all but in one room. One room seemed to have been spared from whatever the rest of the house suffered from. It came with no other explanation than that someone must live there. But no living soul was to be found. Instead, remains were discovered in the basement, both from Mr. and Mrs. Adams together with livestock. Several years later, as people were trying to renovate and hope to sell the place, they discovered disturbing things inside the walls as they started to collapse things and creations put together by human hands. The whole farm were to be forgotten, but somehow people were drawn to it as things occurred. The silo toppled over during a storm, revealing corpses inside. And one night the harvests started, spewing blood across the trees. Now Coldwind Farm is nothing more than the buzzing sound one can hear during summer nights. A new figure has entered the arena. I spotted her as she somehow moved through a wall clad in bandages that tell an untold tale of something horrid. This, nurse as it seems, brings me new angst during my lonely nights, as my mind runs amuck. Benedict Baker Sally Smithson, otherwise known as the nurse, came to town with dreams of children's feet and laughter in a wooden home built by her husband Andrew. But life came not with smiles, but with plans of destruction. Andrew worked as a lumberjack, a job with its perils. One day, Andrew's foreman had to pay Sally a visit, forever changing her life. She was alone. 
Without food on the table and no other option, Sally had to find a way. But the only employment she could get was at the Crotus Print Asylum. Nobody sought employment there unless they were in dire need. Just like Sally. Without any education, she started at the bottom, doing the hard night shift. Over the years, her mind had reached its limits. Two decades of seeing horrid things that violate the eyes. Memories that are replayed every night. Being abused verbally and physically by people without limits. Sally saw insanity from the outside, just to catch it herself. Finally, she could not take it anymore, and concepts of purification emerged inside of her. She did what she felt was necessary. As the morning staff arrived one day in September, they found over 50 dead patients, lifeless, in their bed along with four staff members, also dead. Only Sally had survived the night, but her mind was gone, rocking back and forth non-stop. Exactly what happened is only known by her, but it seems that some of them had been choked as they had marks around their necks. They got her into an ambulance, but the ambulance never reached the hospital. It was found crashed in a nearby wood, all the staff dead and Sally nowhere to be found. The nurse wields a rusty bone saw for tearing through flesh and bone. She also harnesses the powerful and violent last breath snatched from Crotus Print Asylum Warden Patrick Spencer. Channeling its energy allows the nurse to pierce and jump through the spirit world in a blink multiple times in a row. Doing so leaves her in a state of fatigue. Today I found something. A fallen structure that transports the mind to sanitariums and institutions. But it brings me no ease. Rather, I feel entrapped. Beds and cabinets are scattered about whatever this place might be. Even though it is filled with hiding places, I'll avoid it. Benedict Baker There is insanity, and then there are minds that are so severely distorted that they cease to be human. Instead, they end up a feral, living, unwanted thing. These people must be stored somewhere, and that's where the Crotus Print Asylum plays a crucial role. Established in 1857, Crotus Print was originally a hospital, but as the need of storage grew, it was turned into an insane asylum. Crotus Print is a place riddled with tall tales that aren't even close to the reality that takes place within its walls. It was never the biggest asylum, but the one that held the most violent and warped minds the country had ever met. But it was not the residents that etched the name Crotus Print into the history books. Instead, it was the mass homicide where over 50 patients were found dead in their beds. The building was abandoned shortly after. Investigators had no answers, and the townsfolk became more and more worried as rumors talked about a woman still living inside the asylum. Finally, one night, smoke rose from the woods as Crotus Print had been set ablaze. The bystanders did nothing. They just let it burn. Something, or rather someone, is here now. I've never seen this shape before. A man hiding beneath a mask. He comes with a determination. But more worrying, he comes with an apparent grasp of the hunt. He does not strike me as someone who went eventually unwilling to this place. Is there more to this being than I can fathom? Benedict Baker 
I met him 15 years ago. I was told there was nothing left. No reason, no conscience, no understanding. And even the most rudimentary sense of life or death, of good or evil, right or wrong. I met this six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. I spent eight years trying to reach him, and then another seven trying to keep him locked up, because I realized that what was living behind that boy's eyes was purely and simply evil. Dr. Sam Loomis Some humans are simply bad seeds, seeds infused with a distilled and pure form of evil. Michael Myers, otherwise known as The Shape, is one of those seeds. He had no issues with causing the pain of others. Instead, it was exactly what he sought. But even life can be tough on those with minds filled with terror. The difference is just how one goes about to solve those problems. For Michael, he had to kill to find some inner peace. As he took his sister's life, the police found a silent boy dressed as a clown at the scene. When one stumbles upon a growing fire, one does not pour gasoline on it. But this was an action taken by officials that had no idea how it would shape this demon in the boy's body. Sending Michael to an mental institution was a feeble attempt to save the child. Unsuccessful therapy and nightly screams just made him even more introverted and deranged. People hoped that Michael Myers would end up a parenthesis soon to be forgotten and buried, a failure that soon were to rot away. But then he escaped. Myers' weapon is the iconic bloody kitchen knife as seen in the Halloween movies. As I embarked on yet another day of struggle, I ended up in a new arena, a place that resembles nothing I've seen before, houses with a structural design that's foreign to me, contraptions and architecture that are reminiscent of my hometown, but in another form. A disturbing and puzzling form. I try to avoid it altogether. Benedict Baker Haddonfield is a calm little town without much going on. Or at least it was. If you were to ask anyone in the town, at the school or in a bar, if there's something off with Haddonfield, they'd decline. To accept that this was the birthplace of one of the purest form of evil is hard. People living here have always felt safe and protected. There were no boogeymen or other shady characters in the night. No lurking, no skulking. People slept perfectly fine for decades knowing this for a fact. So when Halloween came about, the town's folks were reluctant to accept that Haddonfield is now forever known as an evil place. Gossip and made-up stories flooded the town. Nobody really knows what happened or if it's safe nowadays. Some moved away, others visited as morbid tourists. During the day, a common visitor wouldn't suspect a thing. But as the sun sets and the night comes, an eerie quietness devours the town. People are afraid. And as you visit Haddonfield, you too will get afraid. Not only because it sits upon a dark history, but also because something is off. This isn't a real place but instead a warped version of a reality that is no more. An entity version, if you'd like. Lampkin Lane 
a simple street with houses that witnessed the horrors that took place. A jungle gym where children once learned to climb. Sidewalks where fathers taught their daughters to ride a bike. All gone. Instead it sits in the palm of the entity, forever held in darkness. Myers's house is the main landmark on the Lampkin Lane map, with the jack-o'-lantern on the front porch. A new terror stalks the darkness. Her appearance strikes me as more intense than the others after but a glimpse of her haggard silhouette. Twisted and torn in unspeakable ways, with grayish dead skin stretched out over her emaciated body. Her arm is a horrid overgrown deformity capable of slashing through both flesh and bone alike. Her very presence speaks of endless torture similar to mine. I wonder, did she refuse the entity's calling until broken, or did she wish for this? Benedict Baker Lisa Sherwood, otherwise known as the Hag, grew up in a quiet village mainly isolated from the rest of civilization. The people of the hamlet were kind, and the elders kept old traditions alive, often keeping the peace by personally settling the ever-rare disputes. Lisa was particularly fond of the charms that they taught her to draw for safety and good fortune. One night, as she was walking home through the woods, a terrible storm struck without warning. Howling winds whipped at her hair as she stumbled through the swamp, her rain-drenched dress plastered to her skin. In the slick, wet mud she lost her footing, careening backwards and striking her head against a rock. Slipping in and out of consciousness, she strained to identify the dark shapes approaching her from between the trees. That's the last thing she could remember. Her kidnappers kept her chained to the wall in a flooded cellar. Though dimly lit, she could see others who large open wounds swarmed with flies. It took merely a day before they returned, carving chunks from the prisoners' bodies with rusted blades, consuming their very flesh down to the bone. Most she saw did not survive long once the cannibals targeted them, but somehow, deep within, Lisa persisted. Starved, infected, and mutilated after several weeks of torture, her gaunt arms became loose in their shackles. She pulled hard, the metal tearing through skin and muscle until she was free. Her flesh oozed viscous yellow pus and bones were visible beneath gangrenous wounds. She could go no further. Delirious, she thought of home. She thought of the elders. With her dying breath, she etched the symbols that he taught her into the floor using what remained of her fingers. Almost in response, a dark hunger stirred inside her. It yearned for blood. An oath. She chose vengeance. The village's search party eventually brought them to an old shack in a swamp. Inside, its previous inhabitants had been viciously dismembered and devoured by an unidentifiable animal. In the cellar, amid rotting corpses and disconnected flesh, the elder's charms were scrawled into blood on the floor. Lisa's body was not among the bodies, and it was never found. The village was never the same again. The hag's main weapon is her horridly overgrown and deformed claws. She is also able to create duplicates of herself and teleport to any of those duplicates. The entity keeps rearranging the world around me in an attempt to confuse me, to break me. I know what it wants, but I will not obey. Yesterday, or 
the last time I left the campfire, a dark swamp opened up, decaying and rotting, and a maze filled with walls of mud disoriented me in my path. In the midst of it, I found bloodied and saturated corpses amongst drowned wooden buildings. My feet dragged through the sloppy mud, leaving a noticeable trail I had to cover lest the killer find me. I do not know what devilish deeds that took place here, and I no longer care. I can no longer feel empathy for what must have been endless torment for the previous inhabitants. Benedict Baker It wasn't until the villagers of a nearby hamlet discovered a half-submerged collection of huts during a search for a missing person that the true history of Backwater Swamp began to unravel. After the federal authorities were alerted to the small settlement, they opted to drain the waters around the village in order to investigate the outcome of the previous inhabitants. Even after only a small amount of water had been removed, they soon realized that any poor souls that have drifted on the currents or gotten lost wandering in the swamp had found their way to this place. Saturated bits of flesh floated in the remaining water and caked blood darkened the already rotting wood of the shacks amidst the occasional limb. In the middle of the encampment, a large paddle steamer engulfed by the sloppy, drooling mud loomed over its surroundings. Upon closer inspection, one could read decrepit lettering across the port side reading, The Pale Rose. Further drainage eventually gave access to the lower levels of the steamer. Even going near the entrance caused several investigators to vomit as a horrible stench oozed out of the open air. At the top of the stairs, several marks in the walls could be noticed, hinting that something had been clawing at them. The marks continued almost in a line down the steps until the flooded basement hid them from sight. At the bottom, the true horror was found. An approximation of 37 confirmed sets of human remains floated and bobbed in the crimson water, veins and intestines flowing out of their respective cavities. Corpses showed trace of being cut into, their bones apparently carefully scraped free of flesh by either tools, claws, or both. Only one body, Lander Millard, was ever identified and sufficiently recovered for a burial. Most deduced a cannibalistic individual likely hunted in the swamp, though this was never proven. Village rumor has it whoever was responsible fled into the darkest reaches of the swamp, to one day begin their foul hunt again. I have difficulty keeping my sanity. Each day this altering world provides me with new trials. A man wearing the robes of a doctor crossed my path. From afar I witnessed him walking around, searching. But he was not normal. Eyes and mouth pried open in a painful and disturbing way. Where do these fiends stem from? I do not trust him. He looks like he wants to bring pain, not healing. I will stay away. It is the wisest thing to do. Benedict Baker From an early age, Herman Carter, otherwise known as the Doctor, understood the human psyche. To analyze and deconstruct something as powerful as the brain intrigued him. He was an apt pupil and gained the attention of his teachers. He excelled in high school and was published in The Partisan, a psychology gazette. Within a year, Carter was fast-tracked into Yale's advanced neuroscience program, really a front for the CIA. 
brain power is a must if you're about to conquer the world and demolish foes across the pond. The CIA understood this, so interrogation and intelligence became their number one priority. All they needed were brilliant people, like Carter. Carter and other top-tier recruits were transferred off-campus and into a secret black site facility in Illinois, known as the Lorise Memorial Institute. A protege craves a mentor, and that's where Mr. Stamper stepped in, who taught Carter that information is everything and knowledge is power. He was given all instruments needed, a guiding hand, and more or less everything he asked for. He never realized that the sunlight had started to become so scarce that he too was kept in the dark. Because knowledge doesn't only give you power, it also transforms you into a threat. To extract information was his mission. Mr. Stamper encouraged Carter to go further and not to consider this a normal medical facility. No eyes were watching them, there were no rules to abide. The agency just pointed Carter in the right direction, then he started to take a few steps back as he saw how Carter could walk on his own. Docile test subjects were exchanged for real, live spies. People that played a role in the troubles outside the facility. Carter shouldered this new role. Project Awakening took form, and on paper, Carter described it as experimental interrogation. It was approved, and over a few months, nobody knocked on his door. Screams and moans fill the corridor outside his lab, but wars skew people and what they accept, as long as the enemy is kept at bay. The fluorescent lights flickered more and more often. Electroconvulsive treatment became a standard dish on the menu. Prisoners held at the facility begged the guards to take them to any other lab but Carter's. Rumors were disregarded in the beginning. Over the years, Carter became known simply as the doctor, and no one ever questioned if he had even held a medical certificate or even what happened to the prisoners after they had given up their information. It was only after the Lurie's Memorial Institute went silent for a week that they had finally uncovered the true horror of what had happened there. Carter's experimental information extraction had turned to horrific and bizarre torture. Patients and prisoners were found dead or in vegetative states with all types of head trauma. In his office, they found the most terrible discovery of all, Mr. Stamper himself. His head peeled open in an array of electrodes and sensors inserted into his still-working but annihilated brain. There was no sign of Herman the Dr. Carter, but his research papers suggested that he had been using the prisoners as part of awful ECT experiments as he searched for the power of mind control. The government didn't want to know. The black site was condemned and all the knowledge of the Lurie's Memorial Institute redacted forever. The doctor's main weapon is an electrified spiked steel rod. His secondary ability is his spark. Is it a gift or a curse? The entity has ignited a corrupted and inexhaustible spark in the doctor's heart, which allows him to generate electroconvulsive power at will. His insidious treatment corrupts the minds of those it touches. Victims shocked by the corrupt spark begin to lose their grip on reality, and with repeated exposure, inevitably succumb to madness. Memory 1782 that's what he calls Professor Blanchard. 
The imbecile is choosing two students to lead a research assignment in an abandoned farmhouse. Carter knows he's going to be selected. He's the best in the neuroscience program. The best at the Leary. The Leary. It could only be the Leary. The Leary or the Allen. Two institutions with a history of working with the government to push the limits of psychology beyond the code. Not beyond the code. Despite the code. The papers coming out of the Allen amazed him, captured him, inspired him. Had he been Canadian, it would have been the Allen, or what many called Ravenscrag. The experiments they conducted were brilliant, cutting-edge, mind-shattering. He wishes he were a student in the 50s studying under Lord Cragg. The nickname patients gave the genius at Ravenscrag. Lord Cragg returned from the trials with ideas not cautionary tales, not discussed like the other bleeding hearts who condemned the doctors who would, anyway, be smuggled into his country and be given the highest positions in government in exchange for their discoveries. Lord Cragg took the experiments he had heard about to the next level, and Carter, Carter hopes to do the same, but not with this professor, not with Blanchard, Dr. Blanchard, Dr. Bleeding Heart Blanchard. He has no idea what real power is. Real power is freedom. True freedom. Freedom beyond the limits of ethics and morality. Memory 1783. Carter's leading the research assignment with another peer. The challenge? Secure the secret word through the good doctor, bad doctor interrogation technique put forward by some other bleeding heart imbecile at some other institution. He's Bad Doctor. Bad Doctor with a code. A list of do's and don'ts the imbecile gave him. Very limiting. Too limiting. Self-limiting, even. How is he supposed to secure anything with these limits? Surely he realizes how futile the experiment is with this code. Nevertheless, he tries. He shouts at a fellow student sitting across the table from him. Shouts? Big deal. Tell me or I'll shout again. The student doesn't take him seriously. It's all make-believe to him. I should smash his skull and yank the secret word out of his substandard, mediocre brain. Memory 1784. Second day and nothing. Carter's frustrated, really frustrated. At least they're tied up. All seven of them. But it's still not enough. They need to take the interrogation to the next level. Deprive them of food and water. They'll talk. When their cells begin to self-cannibalize, they'll talk. Better yet, he wants to deprive them of sleep. Sleep deprivation removes masks, lowers guards, makes prisoners talk for the promise of a few minutes of sleep. The seven prisoners stare at him. They know they're safe. He can see it in their eyes. Limits. No one got anywhere respecting limits. He despises his colleague, good doctor. He'd have the secret by now had he been working alone and without a code. Memory 1785. Ridiculous limits. Skinner knew better. Put his own kid in some kind of a box for years just to see what it would do. Huxley worked for the Secret Service and wrote Truths as Lies in Brave New World. War of the Worlds was another great test in mass propaganda. The power of the radio to induce fear and anxiety in an unsuspecting audience. 
the power of fear and anxiety to inspire silence and indifference and create perfect consumers. Ethics, morality, limits. For sheep, not shepherds. Carter feels anxiety unlike he ever felt as he watches Good Doctor interrogate one of his classmates. He approaches him from behind with a piece of wood, something he found on the ground, raises the makeshift club. Before he realizes what he's doing, he pounds the good doctor's head. Pretend fear becomes real fear as his fellow students stare at him in horror. No more good doctor, no more rules, no more limits, except the limits of his imagination. Memory 1786. Carter ties a student to a chair. Warm blood drips everywhere. He twists pieces of flesh off his face. The sheep look away, but never up. With terrible moans and squirms, he gets a secret word from each and every one of them. New. Reich. Horizons. Fourth. Bird. Kill. His classmates beg to be released. They sob and agonize in their chairs. They plead the experiment is over. You have the words. You win. We're done. Carter smiles. He's still got a few days. A few more days and a few more experiments to run. Could put his career at risk, but he's got the good doctor to take the fall. I'll take what I learned from Lord Crag and lobotomize these imbeciles and manipulate. No, not manipulate. Manufacture. Yes, manufacture reality. Memory 1787. Music blares. Eyes are kept forced open with toothpicks. Carter piggybacks a looping song with an inaudible subliminal frequency to evoke fear, anxiety, and discontent. He experimented with the loop on his parents. Always caused a fight between them. He doesn't remember where he got the loop. He first read about the subliminal frequency from advertisers. Advertisers deny subliminal loops work. Of course they do. Advertisers deny they use subliminal loops, but they do. They use them, and they work. They must. They must because peace and contentment is our natural disposition. War and discontent needs to be instilled, enforced, manufactured, repeated over and over again until it's the main script in the collective consciousness. Paperclip, Bluebird, MK Ultra, MK Delta, MK Search. They were all necessary. Lord Crag had the right idea. Good instincts. So did the Black Sorcerer and the Dirty Trickster. They inspired all the goodies he brought with him in his bag. Music, drinks, drugs, lots of drugs. For a moment, just a moment, he hesitates. He'll probably go to jail for a long time if he uses his goodies. But being free, being truly free for a few days, is worth a lifetime of imprisonment. But I won't get caught. Good doctor will. Memory 1788. Carter wonders if he can remother these sheep. Remother, he loves the term. He wishes it was his own, but it's not. Shock them with electricity and expose them to endless images of death, chaos, and destruction. Traumatize the brain. Empty it. Lobotomize these subjects to remother them with new personalities. He wonders if he can remother these sheep into wolves. Give them to kill each other. Better yet, turn these good, law-abiding students into serial bombers. 
He rips the plug out of a lamp, splits the wires, peels them, places the exposed wire into a student's mouth, slowly approaches the socket, taking in his terror, plugs it in, screams as he remothers this exemplary student. A putrid smell of burning hair and skin reaches his olfactory receptors. There's another stench. Imbecile soiled himself. Carter laughs. He hasn't been this stimulated in ages. To be free. Truly free. Memory 1789. Carter hasn't had this much fun since he first tried to transplant a mouse brain into a rabbit. A week isn't enough. He wishes he had more time. He needs more time. There are new avenues within the mind to explore. Too many avenues, not enough time. He wishes he had the tools to operate on their brains. There are knives in the kitchen. Could work. Not surgical precision, but enough. He's read about a gland in the brain that looks like an eye. A gland that supposedly secretes DMT. A kind of mystical, hallucinogenic drug. He wonders if he can extract it from a living subject. He wonders what a good dosage of human DMT does to a test subject. Memory 1790. Carter unties a rope. He's going to release Good Doctor. He's pumped him with drugs and programmed him with new thoughts. He believes the other students are Russian spies that need to be executed for national security. He unwraps the rope and places a screwdriver in his hands. He changes his mind, removes the screwdriver, replaces it with a fork. Changes his mind again, replaces the fork with a spoon. He's never seen a spoon used to kill a human being. He backs away from the good doctor who is lost and confused. Remothered, he says a phrase. The moon is down. Confusion becomes clarity as good doctor stands and approaches the Russian spies with a spoon. Memory 1791 Bleeding Heart Blanchard returns to the farmhouse with a group of men Carter's never seen before. They look like government men. He suppresses a smile and tells them Good Doctor got out of hand. Took things a degree too far. He barely got out alive. Blanchard tells him to shut up. His tone is different. He doesn't sound like an imbecile. We tap the whole thing. Carter exchanges a look with the men in black suits. He doesn't understand. The imbecile enters and does the unexpected. He stares at the barely breathing student unperturbed. No fear, no panic, no emotion, nothing. He grins and mumbles something to himself in German. He turns to Carter with a smile. His smile turns to a grin when the men in black suits handcuff and arrest him. Blanchard whispers, Looks like you had your chance to make merry hell and took it. The cuffs are just for appearances. I don't understand. Yes, you do. You understand much more than the others. Welcome to MK Awakening. Nestled in a sleepy woods three miles south of Michaelstown, Illinois, the Leary Memorial Institute started out life as a hospital specializing in the rehabilitation of GIs returning from the Korean War. The mansion built in the late 1800s and its massive lot were donated by the previous owner to be transformed into a medical facility. As an army hospital, it always fell under different laws and rules to other hospitals, and in 1967, it effectively became a front for the CIA. Under the stewardship of Otto Stamper, 
the old army patients were shipped out and a huge fence erected around the property. Around this time, the public were refused access to the patients and the whole place was shrouded in secrecy. By 1970, the institute was fully transformed into a CIA black site, with special requirements to develop cutting-edge interrogation techniques, and they employed a wide range of different doctors and specialists to help them. The institute thrived through the 70s, growing to a staff of hundreds, filling the main hospital and several outbuildings. Documents and evidence about the institute is scarce, as the government condemned the entire building in 1983, even raising most of the building to the ground in what seemed to be planned explosive demolition. Even now, the events that led to the closing of the institute and what happened to the staff and patients is shrouded in controversy and mystery. Snippets of information in heavily redacted documents tell the story of some kind of incident or event, but even the most tenacious of reporters have failed to unearth any real evidence of conspiracy or wrongdoing. You can still see what remains of the shell of the main hospital facility, standing defiant against the ruins that surround it on what is still U.S. military land. A figure clad in the head of a hare, a most disturbing sight. This new foe holds something human within her, some shards of ordinary life. She seems to be a hunter. I have met many different beings in this place but this is the first one with a natural skill of hunting. In any other place, one could deem it a talent. But her knack for tracking, capturing, and killing is something else here. There is something else in her, too. She seems to be seeking something. Benedict Baker As soon as Anna was able to walk, her mother started teaching her how to survive a harsh, solitary life in the northern woods. Living in such an extremely remote and dangerous area required skill and resilience. When sunlight became too dim for productive activities, they would take refuge in their house, a sturdy old cabin constructed to resist the toughest winters. Close to the hearth's warmth, Anna would rest in her mother's arms, surrounded by the few wooden toys and masks she had crafted for her. Drifting off to sleep with stories and lullabies, she dreamt happy dreams, ignorant of the events that would soon change everything. Anna and her mother were stalking a great elk through the woods. They knew it was dangerous prey, but it had been a particularly difficult winter, and they were almost out of food. The specter of starvation frightened them more than any forest creature. Without warning, the elk reared, bellowed, and charged at Anna. She was paralyzed with fear as the whole world seemed to shake under the immense beast's pounding hooves. The elk was close enough for Anna to see the murderous fury in its eyes when her mother threw herself in its path, axe in hand. A blood-curdling scream escaped from her lips as the elk impaled her upon its antlers and hoisted her into the air. With all her strength, she brought her axe down on its head again and again while it tried to shake her loose. With a sickening crack, the antlers snapped and Anna's mother was free. The beast collapsed. Anna was too small to move her mother's broken body, so she sat with her in the clearing where she had fallen. To distract her from the dying elk's cries, Anna's mother held her and hummed her favorite lullaby. They stayed like that, the huntress and the elk getting quieter and colder, until Anna was alone in the silent forest. 
Eventually, she stood up and started the long walk back home. Still a child, she knew just enough about life in the frozen forest to survive. She followed her instincts and became one with the wild. She got older and stronger and practiced her hunt. As she grew into a dangerous predator, her humanity became a half-remembered dream. She widened her territory and lived off of her hunts. She worked her way up through squirrels and hares and mink and foxes. Eventually, she grew tired of them and hunted more dangerous animals like wolves and bears. When unsuspecting travelers came through her woods, she discovered her new favorite prey, humans. Unlucky souls who strayed into her territory were slaughtered like any other animal. She liked to collect their tools and colorful garments and especially toys when there were little ones. But she could never bring herself to kill the little girls. Girls she would take back to her house, deep in the woods. They were precious, and looking at them woke up something deep in her heart. She craved the closeness of a loved one, a child of her own. Among the pillaged wooden toys, dolls, and storybooks she couldn't read, the girls would be tied by the neck with a rough and chafing rope fastened firmly to the wall. She couldn't let them wander off, or they would surely die outside. Every time, the girls would waste away and die of cold or starvation or sickness. Every time, it plunged Anna deeper into pain and sorrow and madness. She was compelled to try again and started raiding the nearest villages to slaughter families and kidnap their daughters. She wore one of the animal masks her mother had crafted for her so many years earlier to try and calm the frightened children. Villagers spread the legend of a half-beast lurking in Red Forest, the Huntress, who killed men and ate little girls. War eventually came to the forest. German soldiers began to pass through on the march to attack the collapsing Russian Empire. During these dark times, there were no more travelers. The villagers had abandoned their homes and no more little ones to be found, only soldiers. Many of them were found with violent axe wounds. Whole groups disappeared mysteriously. Once the war was over, the rumors of the Huntress disappeared with it, engulfed by the Red Forest. The Huntress wields a traditional wooden axe and throwing hatches, inherited by her mother. Deep in a forest with many names lies a hidden home. The family that once lived there was dependent on the forest and was broken by it. More than a century old, the dwelling is in surprisingly good condition, though it shows signs of often being patched and mended. The forest holds the house tightly in its grasp, growing over and around it like a second skin. Only once inside is it clear that someone still lives there. It is warm and welcoming and lovingly decorated, with a large living space, a bedroom, and a corner dedicated for little ones. Here, they are protected from the harsh winter of the northern forest. The Red Forest is the area surrounding Chernobyl, within the radioactive exclusion zone that was created after the city's power plant melted down. According to the Huntress's lore, which wraps up with stating that German soldiers began to pass through on the march to attack the collapsing Russian Empire. This is confirmed to be the very same location with Anna's story taking place before and during World War I. However, the Red Forest didn't acquire its nickname until after the Chernobyl disaster, which resulted in the reddish-brown color of the decayed surrounding flora.
whether killers perform their heinous acts by the compulsions of their diseased minds, or if they are forced into them by external pressures, it has long been a matter of debate. But for one killer, nature and nurture are inextricably linked. Leatherface kills not from a desire to exert his will over others, to satisfy carnal urges, or even to quiet the voices in his head. He kills because he is scared. Scared that others will hurt him. Scared that his family will be displeased with him. Scared that their shared willingness to eat human flesh will be discovered. Benedict Baker He does what he is told. His family loves him, and that is all that matters. Outsiders are a threat, and threats need to be dealt with. Like those kids that came into the house uninvited. Walked in like they owned the place. Looked around the house trying to find out his family's secrets, no doubt. But Leatherface deals with them and protects his family just as he's been taught. He is not just protector. He has many roles, and each role has its own face. He serves dinner, cares for his family, and dresses well when they eat. His grandpa and Ma used to care for them all, but Grandpa, he is old now, and Ma has been still for a while. So Leatherface and his brothers had to take over. Family is everything to him. Family is security and safety. But even though he did his best, one of the kids got away. He tried to stop her, chasing after her as fast as he could, but she had help. Another outsider driving a truck. The evil trucker killed his brother, ran him over like he was a possum. In a fury, Leatherface leapt at him, the saw ready to avenge his family. But the trucker was too quick. He knocked Leatherface aside and turned his own saw against him. As he watched the outsiders driving away, the rage, grief, and pain combined with the worry about what would happen to his family now. They would surely return with the police, and the police would take his brothers, his grandpa. Without them, what would he do? Without their commands, he would wither and die. As his world collapsed, Leatherface spun in circles, swinging the saw all around, trying to fight off the myriad external threats that surrounded him. Then another feeling overtook him. It came from outside his vision, crawling over his skin with cold dread. He realized that no matter what outsiders could do to him, there was something worse, something bigger that lived in the shadows. He was filled with a terror unlike any he had felt before. But it was almost comforting, like the fear he felt with his family, the fear of disappointing them. He was brought to a place that was familiar but unknowable, and he instinctively knew what he had to do. He couldn't fail it, the way he had his family. Outsiders would come, but he would use his skills to overcome any threats. There would be screaming, but he could make the world quiet again, until the only sound remaining was the blessed howl of the saw. Let the outsiders come. This place plays tricks on your mind. Constantly I question whether I dream or if I'm awake. This most recent horrid ghoul seems to bridge that gap between the states of being awake or asleep. I saw him hunting another poor soul, someone who was not as lucky as me. A man with a hat and a claw-clad hand, a scarred man of sorts. He spotted me, and what actually happened next is still a mystery to me. Dreams took over, 
and I was sure to die. But I woke up, not like in the manner where I awake at the campfire, but instead I just woke up, inside this wretched forest, with memories of nightmares within. I am now afraid to sleep, but also to stay awake. Benedict Baker Even while he lived, Freddy Krueger was a creature of nightmares for those who truly knew him. Hiding behind a mask of warmth and friendliness, Freddy's actual temperament was only known to his victims. When those victims were finally heard, the parents of Springwood tracked Freddy down and took the law into their own hands. They thought that fire had rid them of a monster that night, that their children were finally safe. But an evil as strong as his has a way of surviving. Years passed, the horror was buried, the victims mercilessly forgot. Then, somehow, Freddy returned, and dreams became nightmares once again. Freddy focused his anger on those he had felt had wronged him, building up to his one true obsession, Nancy Holbrook. But he underestimated her strength and resourcefulness. Together with her friend Quentin Smith, she managed to weaken Freddy, mutilating him and leaving him dead once more. Death didn't want Freddy the first time he encountered it. Why did they think it would take him now? He emerged once more, consumed with vengeance. Then he turned his sights on the boy who had blocked his path to Nancy, his number one. Freddy invaded Quentin's dreams, terrorizing him night after night, until his strength and defenses would be at their lowest. When the time was right, he forced the boy to return to the dark reflection of Badham Preschool, where he would have his final revenge. Freddy stalked the boy through the school's halls. He took his time, savoring every moment of the hunt. This was what he enjoyed the most. The smell of their sweat in the air. The ragged gasps of their terrified breath. They were his to toy with. There was the boy at the end of the long corridor, too tired and scared to run anymore? Resigned to his fate? Freddy closed in, arms wide, claws raking the wall. Their tips traced along a pike, the metallic shrieking only adding to the boy's apprehension. A shower of sparks rained on the ground and into the liquid that covered the tile floor. A blue flame blossomed and quickly engulfed the room. The boy took flight as Freddy's burst into flames in a fury. Rooms and walls raced past in a blur until they were in Freddy's basement. There would be no escape from here. Slowly, Freddy closed in on the boy. His fear was so strong now that Freddy could almost taste it. But his eyes burned with a defiant hatred that was almost admirable. Freddy drew back his claws. Then Freddy felt another presence with him. Something old, powerful, and dark. A miasma enveloped him, and the only sensation was a sound like wooden beams flexing and creaking in the distance. The echoing groan of metal crushed against metal. Something arcane and unknowable, halfway between language and pure terror. A moment of falling and spinning, and then Freddy was back in the school. But not his school. It looked the same, but it felt different. His powers were tempered in some ways and focused in others. The boy had gone for now, but another prey walked the halls. Some would be inconsequential, others would become his new favorites. All would fall before his claws. The nightmare's weapon is his iconic clawed glove. He pulls survivors into the dream realm where he can slash to his heart's content.
Springwood is a quiet town in the Midwest, somewhere to raise a family, where neighbors are friends. The diner waitresses know their patrons' names. Doors are left unlocked, and nothing can possibly harm the residents or those they love. But this was just a facade covering a rotten core. Under the cover of respectability, a parasite named Freddy Krueger stalked his prey in what should have been the town's safest space. Once these poisonous crimes were uncovered, the townspeople decided to act. They didn't trust that the authorities would be able to deal with him, to provide the justice they craved. So they banded together and hunted him down. With a single decisive act, they hoped to burn away the infection from their lives. But they were too late. The threat might have gone, but the rot had infested everything. The houses that seem so pretty now have darkness behind their windows. The leafy streets echo with the sound of fire and screams, and nothing will ever be normal again. The word preschool should make you think of laughter and the sound of children's feet, but this latest structure is the opposite. It represents something dark that ruptures my insides. I do not understand exactly what transpired here, but I get this feeling, a disturbing feeling that in many ways do explain what happened. I have no answers, but I wonder how something cheerful could turn this dark. Filled with catatonic children and crying parents, I can only assume. Benches, desks, and chairs now resemble torture devices rather than tools for teaching, playing, and learning. I saw a teddy bear when I explored the hallways, and I thought about what it might say if it were alive. Then I left the premises. Benedict Baker at first, I actually believed that it was a pig that slept in front of me on the ground. An animal that somehow had eluded the banalities of my old life and managed to end up at this forsaken and forgotten place. But then it rose, from crouch to standing, with its lifeless eyes nailed to my person. I ran, as I have so brutally learnt to do. My curiosity halted my escape after a few feet and I hid in a cabinet. The pig moved like a predator, and I saw. A human body wearing a pig's head as an ornament. It walked by the cabinet and its snout was just a few inches away from me. I held my breath, aching for freedom. A sudden sound caught the pig's attention and it walked away. But not without giving me a last, final glance as if it wanted to inform me that I was given a second chance. I will not get a third. Benedict Baker When John Kramer, better known as Jigsaw, planned for his son to be born during the Chinese Zodiac's Year of the Pig, he wanted it to represent fertility and rebirth, a new beginning for him and his wife, and the start of a charmed life for his son. But that plan was shattered on the night that a junkie broke into his wife's clinic hoping to score. After this event resulted in the death of his unborn son, John finally caught up with the junkie, making him his first test subject. And the pig was changed forever, too. It became a representation of the disease that was rotting John from the inside, a reminder that we are just meat unless we elevate ourselves by our actions, by grasping life from the jaws of death. The pig became a vessel, an agent of Jigsaw, conveying the subjects to their test. For some of those who emerged victorious, the pig could still be a rebirth, 
into their new lives as apprentices, even disciples, of Jigsaw. That was the case for Amanda Young, a troubled soul whose life had been a catalog of harm both to herself and those around her. That changed when she faced and bested Jigsaw's test. Deciding her life was worth something, she became devoted to Jigsaw's cause, ready to take over when cancer consumed him. But she became more dependent on John, her anguish at his impending death combining with a belief that their test subjects weren't capable of saving themselves, of being reborn in the crucible of the games. Seeing this, John presented her with another game, another chance to save herself, but Amanda let her rage and jealousy rule her actions. She failed the test and took a bullet as a consequence. Bleeding out on the tiled floor, darkness engulfed Amanda's vision, accompanied by a sound like creaking wood. Then she was in a forest, once more viewing the world through the eyes of the pig. Trees surrounded her, their branches clawing at her from all sides. Waves of panic washed over her, and she could hear her breath reverberating inside the mask. Had she been damned, cursed to spend her days here in this guise? Or maybe this was another test. Maybe she hadn't failed at all. John always thought one step ahead of everyone else, planned for every eventuality, and he would never give up on her, surely. Jigsaw may have gone, but he had passed her on to another a being from who she would be the pig again. Ultimately, she saw now that she had been right in the choices she had made. The time for games was over. There was no chance of redemption for any of them. They were meat, and meat was destined to die. Hailing from the Saw franchise, the pig wields a razor-sharp blade, attached to a mechanical contraption that can conceal or extend it. Forever devoted to her master's cause, she punished the ungrateful and the guilty with slyness and murderous puzzles. The pig can move stealthily, dash and ambush attacks, and put deadly reverse bear traps on survivors' heads. As I journeyed through the foggy veils that decorate the realms of this place, I saw that, for the first time, I was not alone. Something traversed these forgotten byways, its bright colors still clearly visible, even through the muting effect of the mist that roiled between us. As we emerged into a new yet somehow familiar place, I saw it clearly for the first time. A Carney's caravan, pulled by something that appeared to be a horse but was, to my eyes, older and more terrible. I watched from the trees as a crack appeared at the doorway and a warm, golden light spilled forth into the desolate place. The effect was, I suspect, deliberately inviting, but the figure that emerged was anything but. Its costume a hodgepodge of ringmaster, clown, and other fairground attire. Its face was a nightmare in grease paint. A caricature of a smile slashed across its flabby lips. At its waist were a collection of what looked for all the world like fingers. But what creature would be so monstrous as to collect such trophies? The clown surveyed its new surrounding and its gaze lit on me. A rictus split its face in two and it nodded at me before returning to the caravan. I suspect that it prefers its victims to be less aware than I, and I thanked the stars for that. Benedict Baker Kenneth Chase was born in 1932 by a difficult labor, 
which his mother wouldn't survive. This event drove a rift between him and his father that never closed. As the boy grew, so did his father's resentment and his drinking habit. By the time Kenneth was at school, they lived mostly separate lives. Academically, he was unremarkable, coasting by on his significant athletic prowess. He grew tall and strong, excelling at track events but shunned any attempts to coax him into team sports. On his walk home from school, he would often find feathers on the ground, and he soon began a collection, keeping them in a cigar box under his bed. With his father either at work or in an alcohol-induced stupor, Kenneth had hours to spend alone, transfixed by the regularity of the feathers' barbs and the feeling of softness as he ran them over his lips. Watching the birds that came to the feeder in his garden, he imagined how soft they must be and resolved to catch one. He ingratiated himself with the local dentist, soon procuring some anesthetic. Using this, he rigged up a trap on the feeder that he hoped would knock out a bird long enough that he could touch it. After a few failed attempts, he managed to trap a robin. As it lay in his hand, he felt a sudden rush of a life at his mercy. He had planned to release it once it recovered from the anesthetic. Instead, as its eyes flickered back into consciousness and it began to struggle, his grip remained firm. His fingers slowly tightened around its throat, squeezing until its chest feathers were finally still. He disposed of the body, keeping just a feather, with which he started a new collection, discarding the others as fake. By the late 1940s, Kenneth had left school and started working as a busboy at a local diner. He had also escalated to larger prey, like squirrels, raccoons, and dogs, becoming skilled at customizing the anesthetic dosage for each. In early 1954, a young man went missing and the town was turned upside down in the search. A few months later, Kenneth's father, while doing some work in the crawlspace under the house, found a cigar box. He broke it open and saw, to his horror, that it contained feathers, animal paws, and a man's finger. Returning from work, Kenneth saw his father leaving the crawlspace with a cigar box in his hands. He turned on his heel and never went home again. After a few weeks of living rough, he encountered a traveling circus, and with his prodigious strength, was hired to work the ropes. He assumed a new name, Jeffrey Hawk. Suddenly surrounded by a close-knit community, Jeffrey had to learn how to socialize. He donned a new personality like a disguise, quickly becoming known as charming and helpful, and was welcomed to his new family. Over the next decade, he stayed with the circus, traveling the length and breadth of the United States, but with the itinerant life providing few repercussions he fell into bad habits. Drinks, junk food, drugs, he indulged in all of them to excess. For a time, these vices were enough, but then his old urges returned and his nomadic existence became a cover for him to resume killing. He stole clothes and makeup from performers, fashioning a disguise that would let him get close to his victims before he anesthesized them. Bringing them back to his caravan, where they would awake to find themselves bound and at his mercy. He would finally get to have his fun, mentally and physically torturing them, their screams fueling him before being lost in the night. Once their strength was at its lowest, he would carefully examine their fingers, searching for the prettiest, running them over his tongue to find the tastiest. 
Once he found the best, he would cut it from their hand and proudly add it to his collection, disposing of the rest of the body as pointless waste. Men, women, young, old, he didn't care. The essence of a good collection is in the variety, in the memories and stories they evoke. He removed the costume less and less, shedding his old personality with it, fully embracing the clown, his true self. With time, he became complacent and sloppy. A victim managed to work free of her bindings while he was sleeping off the drink. She escaped, screaming for help, and he awoke to find the rest of the circus bearing down on him. He whipped his horse and the caravan disappeared into the night. Since then, he has roamed the country, a parasite who could always be found at a carnival or circus, but who would never be seen by any playbill. He lured those brave or foolish enough to come near, trapped them, and moved on before they could be found missing. Somewhere along the way, he left the ordinary roads of the United States behind him, traveling through a veil of mist and entering a new realm. It was a place of transience and impermanence, perfectly suiting the life he had chosen to lead. Feeling more at home than he had ever in his life, he had set up camp and waited for his first visitor. Madame Butterfly is the primary weapon of the clown, an oversized butterfly knife as accustomed to inflicting torture and pain as it is to removing limbs and appendages. Throughout his years experimenting with anesthetics and muscle relaxants, the clown developed several effective concoctions and formulas. His favorite, the afterpiece tonic, he has used to great effect, intoxicating and capturing many unwilling victims. She inherited incredible fury from her ancestors. The wrath that flows through her veins is her legacy. The terrible pain she suffered set it off. Swift and lethal, the spirit exacts her revenge endlessly. Benedict Baker Wren was the only child of the Yamaoka family. She was raised in the dusty halls of a traditional house in Kagawa. She studied education at Takamatsu, a private university, which weighed heavily on her family's shaky finances. Her mother got ill that year and the bills started piling up. Wren worked part-time in a futile attempt to help lighten the load. Her father faced a debt that grew without end. He started working double shifts in hopes of obtaining a promotion. That's when he started losing sleep. A dark whisper would keep him awake all night, reminding him of his hopeless situation. Exhausted, he started to lose grasp of reality. Fighting to deny what the voice whispered at night, Wren's father made a desperate move. He met with his superior and explained his situation. He begged for a bonus, an advance, time off anything. His request was denied. The company had launched a defective production line that was costing them dearly. Someone had to be held accountable, and Wren's father fitted the bill perfectly. He was fired after 22 years of service. That evening, Wren came home from work. She'd stayed late to entertain customers that lingered at the restaurant. As she parked her bike in the shed, she heard her mother's scream come from the house. She rushed in, climbing up the stairs to her parents' room. There she found bits and pieces of her mother on the floor. Her limbs were clean-cut, tangled up in an unnatural position. Her breasts were sliced up, revealing her rib cage, which was cracked open. Rin gagged. A sharp katana came crashing down. 
Rin blocked the blade, which bit into her bare forearm. The shock of recognition interrupted her pain. Her father was wielding the katana with a stoic expression. She cried out to make him stop, but he slashed her arm again. She rushed off and slid on the blood-smeared floor. Using the door frame as support, she raised herself up. The katana ripped through the wall, cleaving off her other arm. She screamed in pain as she limped into the hallway, only to be met by her father's blade. She stepped back, trembling, as she held together the soft, loose flesh of her abdomen. Images of her mother's tangled limbs flashed before her eyes. Ren charged at her father, making him stumble back. He punched her torn abdomen and she recoiled in pain. As she struggled to get back up, he slashed her thigh, making her collapse on the floor. As she crawled towards the stairs, he grabbed her hair and yanked her against a partition. The glass shattered on impact and she fell through, landing one floor down. She heard footsteps somewhere above her. With effort, she moved, worming her way into a sea of broken glass. The shards gnawed at her, ripping her flesh. He had to be stopped. He would not get away with what he'd done to her, with what he'd done to her mother. Coughing up blood, her chin grazed with glass, added to the bleeding. A low-pitched heartbeat started to ring in her ears. Her body felt so heavy she could no longer move. The ground shook with her father's footsteps. She knew she was not going to make it, but she no longer cared. She would make him pay, in this life or the next. A dark fog slowly veiled her eyes, but it could not subdue her rage. She would not rest. Not yet. The darkness whispered, promising blood and revenge. An oath was made, and Wren closed her eyes. Memory 5100 Wren sits at her desk, dreading the end of the school day. Not because she enjoys junior high or because she respects her teachers, but because she despises being forced to learn kendo. But her father demands it. He demands that she practice the way of the sword. Not just practice, excel. She is a Yamaoka. The Yamaokas come from a proud legacy, a samurai legacy. He reminds her of this every day, and every day the kids tease and humiliate her, telling her she has no business in their class, telling her she should wield a broom and not a shanai. She ignores them and tries her best. Maybe if she excels with a katana, her father will feel better. He hasn't been himself as of late. Frustrated, irritable, reactive. She can't do anything right. Nor can her mother. He has become very quiet and talks and argues with himself. She doesn't understand what's happening to him. But she knows he is suffering and the last thing she wants is to add to his pain. Family is everything, and maybe one day she'll be okay with wielding a katana. Maybe she'll even enjoy it. Memory 5101 Rin's bones feel brittle and ready to collapse under the weight of the armor. She holds her bamboo shanai up to her opponent. I want this to be over. Can't this just be over? Her opponent insults her. He tells her that there's a shattered window in the changing room she ought to clean before someone cuts themselves. Janitor Yamaoka. He laughs. He makes another janitor joke at her expense. A sudden heat rushes up her face. She wants to shove the shanai down his throat. See how he laughs with wood and splinters piercing through his stomach. Splinters piercing through his throat? 
Where did those thoughts come from? It's not like her to think such thoughts. She angles her shanai and feels something strange inside. She's never felt anything like it before. Like, like a waking dragon in her heart. She stares at her grinning opponent. Faster than thought, she lunges and strikes the head of her opponent. Everyone laughs at him. His head slumps in mingled defeat and humiliation. A boy stares at her with wide, disbelieving eyes. He blinks. You might be a Yamauka after all. She hates to admit it, but it feels good to win. No, not to win. To defeat a foe. To defeat another human being. Defeat another human being? Why would I think this? These aren't my thoughts. But they are. Memory 5102 She doesn't understand what happened. What thing came over her to give her the strength to contend with the boy in front of her? He isn't laughing anymore. He glares at her. She beat him. Not once. Not twice. Thrice. The boys continue to stare at her open-mouthed. Something is changing in Janitor Yamaoka. They know it. She knows it. She feels the waking dragon in her heart. It's the closest she's ever felt to being a fighter. A warrior. A Yamaoka. And she likes it. Likes being treated with respect. Likes being taken seriously. For an instant, she imagines herself beside the great Rinjiro Yamaoka and his son Kazan. Something tugs in her heart, and the dragon stirs. And the dragon, she realizes, is the waking of her raging Yamaoka blood. Memory 5103 Janitor Yamaoka, you got lucky. Let's see how lucky you really are. Boys close in on her, cursing, jesting, shouting. She wants to run but doesn't see an opening. She wants to apologize for being good with a shanai, but the waking dragon inside her heart won't allow it. She didn't do anything wrong. She has no reason to apologize. She finally did what she was supposed to do and now they close in on her as though she had cheated. As though they could see the dragon that had helped her. She feels scared. Where is the dragon now? Where is the spirit of her ancestors? She raises a pleading hand for her abusers to stop. You will pay. You made me look foolish. For a moment there is an opening between two boys and there is no hesitation. Only action. She charges through and storms across the schoolyard with a group of angry boys in pursuit. She quickly ducks behind a garbage bin and watches the boys run past her. One stops turns toward the bin, narrows his gaze. She holds her breath. She can hear her heart pounding in her head. Why hide? You are better than these peasants. Stand and show them who you are. But she does not reveal herself. She hides and wishes that waking dragon to go back to sleep. Memory 5104 Ren emerges from hiding and begins her long walk home. The dragon in her heart admonishes her for hiding, tells her she is more than her tormentors and should never cower before bullies and abusers. She's not sure what she should have done or what she should think. Maybe she should have faced them. Maybe she should have confronted them. Maybe she should have beaten them down and torn them limb from limb. Limb from limb? What am I thinking? Where did that come from, limb from limb? What dark thoughts are these? Before she can answer her own question, she hears a voice. She hears her tormentors jeering and spewing insults at her. 
She doesn't turn around. She doesn't run. She doesn't run because she knows what's coming and she doesn't care. The dragon within her tells her everything's going to be okay. The boys throw garbage at her. Call her Janitor Yamaoka. Janitor Yamaoka. Janitor Yamaoka. She knows what's next. She sees it in her mind's eye like samurai of old. They'll push her down, surround her, punch and kick her. But this time she won't let the pain defeat her. She won't let the fear paralyze her. She'll use the fear and the pain to feed the dragon. Today her bullies will feel teeth and claws. They will feel her wrath. And they will learn. She is a Yamaoka. The spirit wields a shattered katana handed down from generation to generation. The blade shattered after spilling the blood of her kin. Yamaoka is the name she carries from her ancestors, who unleashed hell on the battlefield. The spirit draws her power from their wrath, haunting the living as retribution for her suffering. The spirit can use Yamaoka's haunting to enter the ethereal plane and reappear at a new location. The spirit will depart her physical body, leaving behind a stationary husk. The estate was bought by the first of the Yamaoka, a shipwrecked survivor, who came from a distant, ashy island. He washed ashore just as political tension sparked the flames of war. Yamaoka joined the battlefield and unleashed hell on his foes. No one could match the raw fury of his katana, which elevated him to a legend. They say his devilish mask haunted the dreams of all men. His fame grew as he spilled blood on both sides of the conflict. With power came wealth, which he used to buy the estate and begin his legacy. The land was passed down from one generation to the next, each one leaving its mark on the landscape. The garden grew and expanded throughout the ages. Now only an old maple tree remains untouched from Yamaoka's era, representing the whole family. While the Yamaoka estate displayed a glorious past, the family residence was falling apart. The house needed numerous renovations to remain habitable. The last generation of the Yamaoka family were facing troubled times. Their finances were dire, and the situation worsened when the daughter started university, just a few months before the mother became ill. Shouldering both university fees and hospital bills, the father worked past exhaustion. To keep a roof over their heads, he profaned their legacy. The walls of their ancestral home were sealed with moldy materials for a cheap fix. As the house was stripped of its integrity, an old anger was awakened. Frank Morrison was 19 and had little to show for it. He'd stopped attending school after being kicked out of the basketball team for shoving a referee into the stands. Yet Frank was a man of potential, who could light up a room despite his bleak childhood. At six years old, he'd been taken away from Calgary to start a circuit of foster homes. No matter how many times he'd lash out, threw tantrums, and got into fights, they'd kept moving him to new, unfamiliar houses. His last move had been three years prior, when his last foster dad, Clive Andrews, had picked him up from the adoption center. They'd been on the road for seven hours before reaching a small bungalow in Ormond. It would be the longest time they'd spend together. Clive was too busy trading checks from family services for drinks at the bar. Ormond was a small, stale place, a remote town of 6,000 inhabitants where the Grey Winters drag on for most of the year. 
Frank did everything he could to get into another adopted family. But he changed his mind when he caught the attention of Julie, a beautiful girl who was convinced that she deserved better than a life in Ormond. And Frank, as an outsider, was her ticket out. Frank attended the party she threw where everyone was younger than him and easily impressed, which he liked. He met the impulsive Joey, who liked to show off, and the shy, naive Susie, who was Julie's best friend. They would hang out at an abandoned lodge up Mount Ormond. Their time together was the perfect break from the boring conformity of their small, insignificant, everyday lives. Frank saw it as an opportunity to shape their lack of experience into something powerful. He lined up nights of debauchery and rampage, testing their limits. Bullying, vandalism, and theft were essentially their weakened plans. It came to a point where they would do anything he asked. Nothing was off-limits when they put their masks on. One evening, Frank dared Joey to vandalize the store that had recently fired him. They snuck inside easily enough, as the building was supposed to be empty after closing hours. But a cleaner who was still there grabbed Julie as soon as she came near. Hearing her stifled cries, a dark impulse took over Frank. He rushed to her aid, knife in hand, and without hesitating, planted the blade into the cleaner's back. As the group stared at Frank in shock, he ordered them to finish the job. Joey clenched his jaw, grabbed the knife, and stabbed the bleeding man in his ribs. Susie didn't want to do it. Frank shouted at her. They had to finish what they started. Julie closed her eyes and slid the knife into the man's chest. She handed the wet blade to Susie. They were all in this together now. Susie stared at Julie in disbelief as Frank grabbed her trembling hands and inserted the knife deep into the man's throat. Frank's told them to move fast. They mopped the blood off the floor, stashed the body in the trunk of Joey's car, and drove up Mount Ormond. All four were digging in the muddy snow to dispose of the body when Frank spotted something moving through the woods. He grabbed his knife and broke from the group to check it out. The fog thickened around Frank, becoming so dense that he soon could no longer see ahead. He retraced his steps and stumbled onto an ominous trail. He followed the eerie path as if called by the darkness. Julie, Susie, and Joey finished digging, but Frank was nowhere to be seen. Julie spotted his muddy footsteps in the snow and the three of them followed the trail, which took them deeper into the woods. When Julie, Susie, and Joey did not return home that night, their parents thought they'd run away with Frank. Each family came up with a different theory. The mood in the town changed, however, when a body was found by an abandoned lodge up Mount Ormond. The four members of the Legion wield a sharp hunting knife with a jagged saw back and textured handle. When she was five years old, Adiris, the youngest of a family of seven, was left on the brick-red burning steps of the Temple of Purgation at the center of Babylon. To process her shock and sorrow, she held on to the belief that the gods had a plan for her. Her new life was one of quiet servitude. She would tend to the gardens, prepare ceremonial meals, and polish ceremonial incense burners. At night, she would pray for a sign that would reveal her purpose. When she came of age, she attended the high-ranking priests during the yearly worshipping of the sea goat, the god of water in creation. Swinging a censer down the great hypostyle hall, she cast thick black fumes that reached the cold, towering stone pillars before dissipating.
her worries lifted, and the resulting bliss made her feel closer to the gods than ever. She worked herself to the bone each day that followed, fulfilling her duties while taking on new ones, as she aided the priests during purification rituals. The priests were more and more in need of assistance. Cleansings were being performed daily to answer the demand from outside the high temple walls, where a catastrophic plague had resurfaced. Within months, the priests contracted the disease. It did not take long before they became too weak to perform any kind of ritual. Adiris, having assisted many purification rituals, was the only one able to carry on. The swelling panic had to be contained, even if by a novice. Anxious before her first ceremony, Adiris visited the priest's sanctuary chamber. When she lit the candles, she noticed a narrow opening at the back. Sliding through the gap, she reached a crypt hidden under the sanctuary. The chamber was bare except for the golden statue of a woman, who stood with outstretched hands, her fingers covered in jewels. It was the sign Adiris had been waiting for. The great hall was packed with followers who bowed down as Adiris entered. She strode to the brick altar and grabbed a ceremonial dagger forged in silver, her ruby-ringed fingers wrapping around the blade like claws. The sudden display of luxury intrigued the followers, who were struck already by her youth and beauty. As she began reciting the epic of creation, a woman at the back swooned and collapsed. Adiris rushed to her and noticed the black blisters covering her feet. Without hesitation, Adiris grabbed her sacred blade and swung it at her own foot, severing a toe. Then she offered the bloody part to the gods, asking them to protect the woman. A silence fell over the followers, who revered Adiris as their new priestess. Tales of her wealth, beauty, and devotion began to spread across the city as quickly as the disease. Soon, Adiris's followers called her the High Priestess of Babylon. But her faith was tried when she showed the first signs of infection. Her cough became a mix of phlegm and blood, her neck erupted in abscesses, and her four-toed foot darkened. Ashamed of her condition, she began wearing a veiled headpiece and carried a censer that masked the rancid smell of sick that clung to her skin. Hoping to be saved, she kept performing the rituals, offering blessed water and food to her followers. But no ritual could save her. In a desperate attempt to appease the gods, Adiris banished herself from the city. She traveled north with a few followers, venturing through the cold woodlands of Urashtu until it was no longer possible to walk. They camped in a damp cave, where Adiris lay in a pool of vomit. Her foot, which had turned black, was so swollen that she could go no further. Her followers and she realized the truth in that cave. They were all infected with the plague. Kneeling among her retching followers, Adiris made one last prayer. The black fumes of incense rose in the damp air before being wiped off by a cold breeze. Neither the body of Adiris nor those of her followers were ever found. Many told tales of her return, but no one truly knew what fate had befallen the High Priestess of Babylon. The plague's weapon is the profane censer which exudes the sweet fragrances of the gardens the priestess used to tend to. Her condition deteriorated as the Black Plague overtook her body. Her toes blackened, her neck mushroomed into cysts, and her throat gagged with bloody vomit. She uses this disease to purge onto others.
Danny Johnson, known as Jed Olson by some, grabbed the newspaper from the kitchen counter. It was a week old, but his face was on the front page, grainy and sunken. It was one of those muggy afternoons in Florida where heat and humidity permeated everything in the kitchen, making him sweat while standing still. He slouched in a damp chair to read. This article had better be good. His work in Roseville had been outstanding. Ghost Face Disappears, June 18, 1993 At first glance, Jed Olson was a modest and enthusiastic freelancer with experience in a variety of small newspapers. The staff at the Roseville Gazette appreciated how easygoing and honest he seemed, and so he was treated as a stranger for no more than five minutes into his interview. Jed quickly spotted the editor-in-chief in the room, gave him a wide smile and a firm handshake, and talked about good old American values. And that was it. He was in. Ex-contributor at the Roseville Gazette. Olson never justified his erratic career path, which zigzagged between several small towns from Utah to Pennsylvania. There was no verification of his previous jobs. He had a decent portfolio plus a good attitude, and they needed a contributor right away. The Roseville Murders Olson had been working at the newspaper for five months when the Roseville murders began. Victims from young to old stabbed to death in their homes. From the reports, the victims seemed chosen at random yet the killer knew his way around the houses. The multiple stab wounds indicated a personal motive. No traces of DNA were found. The local police were confounded. The murders were carried with a fury akin to a crime of passion, yet coldly premeditated. The murderer also liked to stalk his targets. Two victims had reported being followed on their way home by a dark figure a few days prior to their death. The killer would follow them from Walleyes, a small bar in northern Roseville, and snap pictures of them at home while looking for a way in. He could watch the same victim for weeks, meticulously registering their habits and routines. When he felt the urge to kill, he'd visit the most vulnerable victim on his list and break inside the house quietly. The whole staff worked on the Roseville murder story. Olson was often sent to interview the family of victims and relay official statements from the police. Unknown to everyone at the time, his involvement added to the final body count. The Ghost Face Panic swelled in Roseville when Olson produced footage of a hooded figure breaking into a house at night. The masked face, a white blur in the dark, stared at the camera for a second before disappearing inside. The ghost face caught on tape was the resulting article, written by Olson. He seemed proud of his work at the time, enjoying how the whole town feared his ghost stories. Weeks later, Olson left a note on his work desk and disappeared. I hope you liked my stories. I enjoyed bringing them to life. Don't worry, I'm not done. The Roseville law enforcement still refuses to comment as Jet Olson remains at large. Danny smiled ripping out the article from the newspaper. When the investigation had been pointing to him, he'd packed his bags and left Roseville swiftly. He got up, the clammy sweat pulling his skin. An oppressive humidity engulfed him as he entered the bedroom. Condensation dribbled on a small misted-up window as bits of cracked wallpaper hung limply. 
Its floral pattern was covered with gruesome photos and newspaper headlines. Danny pinned the week-old article on top of a picture of lacerated scalps. A faint pang of hunger hit him, and he wondered when he had eaten last. Was it this morning while washing his knife and clothes? Or was it last night after following that girl down the street? He couldn't remember clearly. Taking a step back, he admired his work on the wall. His mind drifted, remembering all of the articles he'd written, the stories he'd planned, and the scenes he'd brought to life. A shiver ran through him. A chilling breeze transformed the bedroom's humidity into an opaque, freezing fog. A woman shrieked. Dead leaves crunched under his feet. He smiled in anticipation. The weapon of the ghost's face is his tactical knife, as seen in the Scream movies. A blooming mouth full of needle-like teeth for a face, large, curved razor-sharp claws, and powerful legs to pounce on victims, make the Demogorgon a frightening monster to face in any dimension. It is a nightmare of unrestrained feral rage as it hunts down its prey and rips it to pieces, devouring every last morsel of flesh and gore, leaving nothing for scavengers. The creature is untouched by any sense of compassion or restraint. Looming over its victim, it shows no doubt or mercy, just the pure instinct of insatiable bloodlust as it delivers the death blow. A perfect hunter, the Demogorgon is a macabre testament to the horrors lurking in the Upside Down, and why is a choice pickings for the entity. The Hawkins National Laboratory was one of many federal compounds devoted to the Project MKUltra program. While conducting mind control experiments with test subjects on the ground floor, mostly on abducted children, the underground was ripped open by an interdimensional gate. This rift eventually unleashed an army of creatures in Hawkins. The authorities managed to seal off the facility, but not before the Chicago Sun-Times published an article exposing the operation and its part in the death of Hawkins High School sophomore, Barbara Holland. The laboratory's multi-story compound still stands, a grim reminder of the disturbing events that happened there, most of which remained undisclosed except the few who witnessed them firsthand. Honoring his family name was never enough for Kazan Yamaoka. He wanted to surpass his father's reputation and end what he saw as the thinning of samurai culture with farmers often posing as samurai. His father tried to turn Kazan's attention to more noble pursuits, but Kazan refused to heed his advice and borrowing his father's katana. He embarked on a dark pilgrimage to prove his worth and rid Japan of imposters. Ignoring the code that had been taught to him, Kazan killed imposters in the hills and the valleys, on the beaches and in the woodland. The killings were brutal, cruel, and morbid. He humiliated farmers and warriors alike, yanking off their top knots and stripping them of their armor. His rage, bloodlust, and perverse sense of honor knew no bounds. Monks believed he was possessed by something dark and otherworldly and cursed him while a noble lord began to call him Oni Yamayoga, the rageful samurai, an insult both to Kazan and his family. Determined to redeem his family's name, Kazan now butchered anyone who dared call him Oni Yamaoka. The insult confused him. He had defeated the best, and he had purified the samurai class 
by ridding the land of impostors. How could anyone refer to him as an ogre? Had it been because he had marched onto a battlefield to cut down the fiercest warriors? Had it been because he had taken a conibo and dashed hundreds of skulls with it? Or had it been because of his need to secure a trophy from his victims? It didn't matter. Being called an ogre was more than he could bear, and an ominous voice in his head urged him to strike down the lord who had desecrated his name. As Kazan made for the lord's town, he suddenly found himself face to face with a samurai standing on a dirt road, blocking his way. Kazan readied his kanabo. Without a word, the samurai attacked and quickly secured the upper hand, but he hesitated. With a devastating blow, Kazan crushed the samurai's head and cracked his helmet. As Kazan approached the fallen samurai, he saw his father's face and staggered back to his haunches. His father stared at Kazan with mingled shame and regret as he issued his last breath. Kazan closed his eyes and screamed in agony until he could scream no more. When he opened his eyes again, his father was gone. Not only had he killed his father, but he had allowed thieves to steal his body for armor. Bitter, lost, and disillusioned, Kazan roamed the land aimlessly with his father's voice rattling in his head, taunting him, reminding him of his failures, sending him into fits of uncontrollable black rage. One day, walking in the woods, Kazan happened upon an oni statue. He stopped and stood motionless for a long moment. The weathered and overgrown statue seemed to be ridiculing him, accusing him of being the imposter samurai he had so desperately sought to destroy. Kazan shook the laughing voice out of his head and half remembered the lord who had ridiculed him as Oni Yamaoka. With renewed anger, Kazan journeyed to a town high up in the snowy mountains where the lord resided. A dozen samurai met Kazan at the gates of the town. A dozen samurai fell to his kanobo. His speed and strength were unmatched. His rage was incomprehensible. Covered in blood and gore, Kazan battled through the town and soon found the lord hiding in a villa. He dragged him out of a cabinet, sliced his tendons to immobilize him, and watched him beg and squirm like a dog. Without hesitation, he thrust his fist into the lord's mouth and yanked out the wicked tongue that had desecrated his name. Satisfied, Kazan exited the villa to find himself surrounded by dozens of farmers, wielding rusted scythes, sharp pitchforks, and heavy clubs. He survived the first few assaults, but there were too many attackers coming from every direction. Within moments, Kazan was on the ground staring at a cold and different darkening sky as farmers took turns stabbing and torturing the Oni who had butchered their beloved lord. The frenzied mob dragged Kazan into a small stone mill to continue the torture and finally left him to die a slow, agonizing death. When they returned, the mill was filled with a strange black fog, and Kazan's body and the Kanobo were nowhere to be found. It was the beginning of a dark legend about a rageful Oni haunting the town. The Oni's weapons are the Yamaoka blade and a large Kanobo samurai club. Born in the dust-ridden badlands of the American Midwest, Caleb Quinn was son to struggling Irish immigrants. On the edge of the frontier, 
Sickness, famine, and death were common sights, and pioneers contended for whatever scraps they could claim while tycoons feasted. Caleb's father, once an engineer, had few options to ply his trade, as businesses posted a common sign. No Irish need apply. His antiquated tools laid untouched for years until Caleb uncovered them. Noticing his son's interest in the trade, he gifted him his old wrench. The devices Caleb made under his father's guidance had quaint applications, but when his father was away, they took a grim turn. He hid plans for a mask that would gouge barbed needles into a human's eyes and rip them from their sockets, complete with sketches of it fitted on boys who bullied him. With age, Caleb's engineering abilities became marketable, and employers put their discrimination aside. Henry Bayshore, the owner of the United West Rail, hired him. Caleb first invented a gun that shot railroad spikes into the ground. Next, he handmade a steam-powered tunneling drill. But as Bayshore feigned indifference, the devices began turning up at other companies. The patents stolen from Caleb and sold. A familiar sensation coursed through Caleb's blood, feeding the sharp pain in his heart. Rage overwhelming him, he burst into Bayshore's office and smashed his face into a bloody stew. As he was pulled away, he pushed his specialized gun into his boss's gut and squeezed the trigger. A railroad spike plowed through his skin and viscera, nailing Bayshore to his desk. The only thing that saved Caleb from hanging was Bayshore's unlikely survival. For 15 years, Caleb was confined to Hellshire Penitentiary, the nation's first private prison. In a fortress of illiterate convicts, he found an unlikely friend in the educated prison warden. He designed torture devices for him and in return received extra meals. After a time, the warden offered to commute his sentence. He spoke of something greater than monetary wealth, political capital, and that his connections that could have Bayshore framed and rotting behind bars for life. He had only one request, make him rich, fill the prison, use ingenuity to bring outlaws in alive. Caleb returned to his workshop, and with a few modifications emerged with something new, the spear gun. The first trial occurred when a thief robbed a Chinese laundry. Seizing on the opportunity, Caleb unleashed his prototype. Metal joints screeched as the spike shot forward, gouging into the target's abdomen. But as the spear tugged, it caught the thief's intestines, and with an ungodly sound, yanked them onto the dusty road. After several iterations, the disembowelments dwindled, but Caleb had already earned his new nickname, the Death Slinger. Looking to protect his asset, the prison warden pulled strings and released Irish inmates to form Caleb's posse. The Hellshire Gang was born. For six years, they roamed the country collecting wanted outlaws for the prison, fulfilling their end of the bargain. After a bloody battle at Glenvale, Caleb caught notice of a newspaper headline. Henry Bayshore purchased Hellshire Penitentiary. In the picture, a disfigured Bayshore proudly shook the warden's hand. Caleb's heart pounded with rage, blood swelling as if it would burst from his veins. He'd been sold out, a pawn in a rich man's game. The Hellshire gang pledged their loyalty to Caleb and called for the warden's head. In a thundering gallop, they smashed through the prison entrance, shrieking like bloodthirsty marauders. A guard raised his pistol but hesitated. 
a spear punctured his chest. Caleb grabbed the man's head and slammed it against a prison cell until it spilled through the bars. Reaching the warden's office, Caleb kicked the door and was met with a fortunate sight. It wasn't only the prison warden who cowered in a corner, but Henry Bayshore. Overpowered with rage, Caleb rushed to Bayshore, beating, bludgeoning, tearing at his flesh. The man's blood dripped from his face, crimson pulling at his feet. The Hellshire gang swarmed the warden, snapping bones with each kick. With the two men broken and begging for death, the posse dragged them to the commons, where they were left to the growing crowd of prisoners. Soaked in blood and sweat, Caleb hobbled to his old cell, hardly paying notice to Bayshore's screams. He sat on the bed's edge as drops of blood ran from his fingertips. A thick, unnatural fog streamed through the barred window. He pulled out his old wrench, cracked and rusted, and ran a thumb along the metal, regarding it with faded eyes. He couldn't remember when it came into his possession. He didn't care to remember. At his feet he saw a dusty path, and at its end, silhouettes of all who had done him wrong. The boys who bullied him, the executives who took advantage of him, and again, Henry Bayshore. Emerging from a fog were the tools to dispose of them. Unforgiving steel hooks, brilliant and beautiful in their simplicity. Pain tore through his leg as he stood, but he endured, pushing onwards, walking the dusty path, leaving a trail of blood flowing behind him. The Death Slinger's ingenuity affords him the ability to reel in bounties with a unique invention, a heavily modified hybrid rifle that replaces conventional ammunition with a razor-sharp spear affixed to a chain. An early settlement on the unforgiving frontier, the outpost of Glenvale, was snuffed out in a ruthless, bloody gang war. Guns fired indiscriminately, cutting through gang members and civilians alike. When the dust settled, the dead outnumbered the living. By nightfall, only the crows remained, feasting gluttonously upon their victory. Well, that wraps up all of the information on the killers and their respective realms of Dead by Daylight. I want to thank my patron Perez for his continuing support at the Intermediate Explorer level. If you enjoyed the episode or have any suggestions, be sure to leave a review and don't forget to go over to the Patreon page at patreon.com slash explorer to support the show today. Thanks for listening.